Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the fields where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before? May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. great story, isn't it? So we've been talking about the book of Ruth together. We're in chapter two this week. And so I'm not going to re-preach chapter one, but I want to make sure that you have time to find Ruth chapter two in your Bible. 
And just kind of give you a little bit of leading into what's happening in Ruth 2. If you remember back in Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to a man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king. And Elimelech and his family are living in Bethlehem, and the unthinkable has happened. Bethlehem, the, the city of bread, has run out of bread, and they are finding themselves in the midst of this incredibly deep and hard famine. So Elimelech, looking around, knowing that he has no food to feed his family, makes the hard choice to take his wife, Naomi, whose name means sweetness, lovely or sweetie pie, and moves with her and, her and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, whose names do not mean sweetness or sweetie pie, but instead mean sickly and dying. Or in our vernacular, they took their boys' pneumonia and leukemia, and they moved to Moab, of all places, Moab, the, the pagan nation of Moab, the, the people who did not like the Israelites. In fact, they had a conflict with the Israelites. But they, they moved to Moab because there was no bread in Bethlehem, and there was a great famine. And so Elimelech made the hard decision to move to Moab so he wouldn't die. And then he died. And so now Naomi is left with her two boys in a foreign land, but at least she's got her two boys, and they become marrying age, and she marries them off to, to Moabite women, which is the right thing to do. You're in Moab, and I was like, okay, get them married. They get married, and after 10 years, the unthinkable occurs. Her two sons die. And so now Naomi is in a foreign land with no husband, with no children, with no boys to take care of her. There is no provision for her. There's no protection for her. In a pagan land, that is an absolute disaster. But Naomi hears that God's broken the famine back in Bethlehem, and so she takes her two daughters-in-law, and she begins the journey back to Bethlehem, and on the way she stops and says, no, this is foolish. Girls, don't come with me. I have nothing to offer you. There's no hope if you come with me. I have no more sons. You can't get married to any more of my boys. I have no more boys. I don't even have a husband myself. And even if I did have a husband, and for some reason was able to have another son, are you going to wait until they grow up to marry them? No. Go home. Go back to your mom and go back to your daddy. Go back home. Now, one of the daughters-in-law, or listens, and she heads back. But then you have this, this beautiful um, soliloquy of Ruth that says, no, by all means, I will stay with you. I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. And where you go, I will go. And where you lay your head, I will lay my head. And where you die, I will die. And may God do terrible things to me, should I not keep my word. Naomi continues on with Ruth, the stubborn one. They walk into Bethlehem, and as soon as she walks into town, her little Friends in Bethlehem recognize her and see her, and they begin to whisper among themselves, Isn't that Naomi? Didn't she leave here with her husband, Elimelech? Is it? I'm pretty sure that's Naomi. And Naomi overhears it and says, No, I'm not Naomi. Stop calling me Naomi. Stop calling me Sweetie Pie. When I left here, I was full. My husband, my two boys. But God has emptied me. So don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweetness. Call me Mara. Call me the bitter one. I stand here in front of you and I have nothing. Which had to feel funny if you were Ruth. I'm here. Anybody see me? And that's how chapter one ends. 
So we get to chapter two. This is, uh, chapter two is, is probably becoming quickly one of my favorite um, chapters in all scripture. There, there's so much action and conversation and just, oh, how about that? I mean, it's just this awesome story. So I want to walk through the whole chapter with you and, and pretty much just tell you the whole story as we go. So in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 3 there, you've got this, this whole theme of it just so happened. See, you get the picture that Ruth and Naomi are back home and they're sitting and they're starving. They're hungry. There's no food for them. And so, so Ruth, um, uh, well, let me, let me back up. There's an introduction that happens first in verse 1. I skipped verse 1. That's like the worst thing in preaching to ever do. Verse 1 talks about Naomi having a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, who's a man of standing whose name was Boaz. So since we've introduced everybody else's names and what they mean, let's talk about what Boaz means. Boaz means a, a myriad of things. It could mean a worthy man, could mean a mighty warrior, could mean a distinguished gentleman, an honored person. A mighty man of wealth, a, a mighty man of character. So as you read the story and you look at, 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 at Boaz, what I come up with is this. This isn't just Boaz. This is big, bad Boaz. He is the dude's dude. He is the type of guy who never listened to Justin Bieber on purpose. I'd hang with him. He's a man of great character. And so we're given a little snippet, a little introduction into this man, and then it continues, and Ruth's like, listen, Naomi, verse 2, can, I'm going to go into the fields, and I'm going to glean. I'm going to pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And, and Naomi says, you, you go ahead, my daughter, you, you go ahead. The, the idea is this, Ruth is saying, I want to go glean. I'm going to go, uh, we're hungry. <coughs> Excuse me, if you haven't noticed, there's a sickness going around. I don't know if any of you have gotten to experience the joy, so I apologize. Um, <coughs> so, so Ruth <coughs> and Naomi say, you know, listen, we're, we're hungry, and, and Ruth's comment really is, sitting here isn't going to help us, mama. So let me go do something. Let me go gleaning. Let me go find the leftover grain. And so let me, let me explain what that is. That, that would be common for the farmers in Israel as they were farming their fields. They would leave the corners of their fields unharvested. Or they would harvest and they would leave scraps in the corner so that any poor person, any foreigner, would be allowed by the law to come to their field and to collect and, and they would be able to supply the food for them. And in fact, it's, it's described to us <clears throat> Excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. God says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave those there. Don't, don't go... <clears throat> excuse me, do not go over your vineyard a second time. Don't pick up the grapes that you have dropped, the grapes that have fallen. You leave them for the poor. You leave them for the alien. And then God throws at the end, I am the Lord your God. I am the one giving you this instruction. This is the Hebrew welfare system. This is how they would take care of those who weren't able to take care of themselves. And it's really interesting in verse three, there's a fascinating phrase. It says this, she went out, she entered a field. She began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Big Bad Boaz. As it turned out, it just so happened. If you were to translate that literally from the Hebrew, you would translate it this way. Her chance chanced to hit upon the field belonging to Boaz. 
her chance chanced to hit upon the field belonging to Boaz. It's just this stroke of luck. It just so happened that now Ruth has found herself in big bad Boaz's field, gleaning. I mean, that would be enough in and of itself. But then the unthinkable happens and big bad Boaz stops by his field to check in on his workers for the day. See in verse 4, just then Boaz arrived. It just so happened that she chanced chanced upon his field, and then it just so happened that he stopped by at that particular moment. When he stops in to see his workers, he gets out of his truck, because that's what I'm envisioning. And he says, hey, everybody, the Lord be with you. And his workers stop what they're doing and they look up and they see it's boss Boaz and they're like, oh, and the the Lord bless you, they answered. Now I know you all work in places just like that. Where the boss rolls up and he's like, hey everybody, the Lord be with you. And then it's kind of like a a glee moment or a Monty Python's moment. You all start your little dance and song. You're like, hey boss, how are you? Right? So my family's been waiting for me to break out that incredible dance for weeks. So I didn't want to disappoint them. That, that's, that shows you what type of man Boaz is. That Boaz would roll up on his field and get out, and the first thing out of his mouth is a, a biblical blessing that's found in the book of Numbers. A covenantal blessing that he would bestow upon his, his workers, his employees, and his employees would have enough respect to respond to him in kind. You get to verse 5. And Boaz having arrived at his field, asks the overseers of his harvesters, hey, whose young woman is that? Who does that young woman belong to? There's a couple things I want to point out about that. Uh, First, Boaz rolls up on his employees and he instantly recognizes the new girl. How many of you had to uh, introduce yourself to your own boss multiple times? (laughs) So, okay, I'll fall on my sword. How many of you have had to introduce yourself to your pastor multiple times? I I know, I get it, I'm sorry. (laughs) But there's something about this man. He shows up in the field and he says, wait, her, who's that? But there's a second aspect to that that it's implied here that when he rolled up and saw her, it wasn't just like, hey, she's new. It was, hey, she's new. Love at first sight, or at least attention at first sight. I don't know how you met your spouse. Was it like that? It was for Stephanie and I. I mean, she laid eyes on me and could not keep her hands off me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, no, no. And I've told this story before. It's all right. It's fun. I love telling this story. So I was a sophomore in college. She was a freshman in college. I had my freshman year worked in our cafe type area, our snack shop area. And my sophomore year, I wasn't working there. Um, But I had gone to get a snack of some type with one of my buddies. And so when I'm standing at the counter, I'm like third in line. I'm looking behind the counter and I see Amy, who's somebody who I had worked with the, uh, the year before. And then two new girls working behind the counter. And I saw Stephanie. And I looked at my buddy and said, do me a favor. Poke your head around the corner. That's where the schedule's hung. Tell me the names of the people who are working tonight. So he poked his head around the corner. He's like, all right. One of them's Rachel. 
One of them, Stephanie. Like, all right. Got to the counter. My turn. But here goes nothing. Hey, Stephanie. And she was like, whoop. I'm like, yes. Because my life would have been forever different if I'd have been, hey, Rachel. No, oh, no. I mean, hey, Stephanie. That'd have been rude. And from that moment on, we have different stories about how it worked, but I pursued her relentlessly. <laughs> you kind of get the same feel here with big bad Boaz rolling up in his field like, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Who's that? The answer that comes from the overseer of his harvesters is amazing. That, that right there, verse 6, is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said to me, please, let me glean, let me gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she went into the field, and she has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. He says to, her, to, to, to Boaz, listen, this, is, this girl, she's the Moabite. That is not a compliment, in case you were wondering. That, that, to, to, to refer to her, her, her foreignness in that moment was actually kind of a dig against her. Oh, that's, that's that Moabite. But let me tell you about this. I mean, she is not bashful and she is not entitled because she approached the foreman, basically, and, and she didn't have to ask his permission to glean in the field. We already looked at it. The law gave provision for that. But she approached the foreman and said, may, may I glean? In fact, she wasn't bashful either. She's like, not only may I glean, may I glean a little more aggressively than normal. See, normally when you would glean, you would go to the corners of the fields. But Ruth approaches the foreman and says, listen, I would like to know if I could get in line behind the harvesters. And this is kind of how, how it would work. The harvesters would go through the field with their, their sickles. And they would cut down the crop, and they would pile up the, the, the crop that they would cut down. And ladies would follow behind the harvesters and would tie up the crops. And then after those, those uh, tied bunches of crops would be carried away, then the gleaners would be able to come through. And Ruth's not bashful. She's saying, listen, I'm hungry. My mother-in-law's hungry. C can I bypass the ladies? Can I follow behind the harvesters as they cut down the crops and, and bushel them up? Can I, can I just kind of walk through the piles and, and pick up what I might need to feed myself? So not only is she not bashful, not only does she not just assume that she's allowed to do this, she doesn't behave in an entitled way, but she is a hard worker. I mean, the foreman's like, listen, this girl, she came, she asked, and she has not stopped working all day, except for, except for this little coffee break she took back at the shelter. I mean, it wasn't much, but... Just a little time. Impressive. Boaz responds. He approaches Ruth and he says to her this. My daughter, listen to me. <laughs> I know about you. You know how you read uh, narration and in your head you get the voices of what it sounds like? I, I'm hearing Boaz down here somewhere. Hey, baby. You just listen to me. <laughs> You don't go and glean in another field. You don't go away from here. No, 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 no. You, you don't go to, to any other fields. You don't go to the Arbaugh's farm. You don't go to the Myers farm. You don't go to the Lisa's farms. You stay right here with me, right here. You stay here with my servant girls. You work with my employees. Just watch the field where my men are harvesting. And you follow along after the girls. You, you go with them. And I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. In the day and age that we live, that is a significant statement. 
In fact, you might say that Boaz enacted the first sexual harassment policy with his men. Do not touch her. And it's not like he's threatening them with a written warning if they do. I mean, I'm guessing Boaz's threat was more like, don't touch her. I have a lot of fields, and they will never find your body. And then he tells her after that, not only have I told the men not to lay a hand on you, whenever you are thirsty, you go, and you get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. That is astonishing for two reasons. Foreigners always filled their own water jars. And in fact, in Israel, foreigners were responsible to fill the water jars for Israelites. And women always got the water. Never the men. See, what we're seeing is a man who is completely different in his culture. Big, bad Boaz is a gentleman. He, he treats all people, even those who are under his authority, right, with respect. The Lord bless you. He, he provides and he protects those who can't provide and protect themselves. He, he serves this foreign woman in a way that, that some people would look at and call chivalrous. And chivalry shouldn't be dead. And, and when I talk about chivalry, I never understood. Let me take off my coat and lay it across the puddle for you. That makes no sense. Walk around the puddle. I mean, that might not... <laughs> I'm just watch Tom and Jerry and be like, what? Fall for it again. Um, I, don't, I don't mean chivalry like that. Gentlemen, serve others. That's what biblical masculinity is. Using your mouth, your words, your wit, your wisdom, your strength, your ability, your lack of strength, your lack of ability to serve other people. That is biblical masculinity. So open the door. <laughs> pull out the chair for the young woman. I don't mean like, hey, I gotcha. I mean, slowly pull out the chair. <laughs> Pay for the coffee. Okay, so, so let, me, let me deal with this. Hear me through this though, okay? The, 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 the fight for um, women's equality, a lot of it done even through the feminist movement, that fight um, has led to some very good things. We should have equal pay. I'm not running for office, by the way. We, we should have equal pay for equal performance. Men within this place, you had better look at the women in this place and understand that they are co-heirs with us in Jesus Christ. That women in this place are also called to carry the cross of Jesus Christ, not to watch you do it or cheer you on. Oh, my hero. We must recognize that our equal standing in Jesus comes as a result of Jesus' sacrifice for each of us. Um, but women, me opening a door for you does not lessen your standing in the community. I remember to this day, I could, see, I could sit down with a sketch artist and still sketch out her face with that, a sketch artist. And this was 15 years ago. I remember opening a door for, for a, a young woman and, and just at the store, I opened the door and I stood back and waited, and she glared me down. I'm like, oh, no, good, after you. And she's like, I can open my own door. I was like, well, yes, yes, you can, and you will. Um, 
Being served by another person does not mean you're lesser than them. So men, we must love women as an equal image bearer of God. We need to treat the ladies in our lives with love, kindness, protection, and care. And young men, listen up, because there will be a quiz. We're watching. And so are the ladies. It's biblical manhood. So, so, so listen, we get to this point, and we're verse 9, and Boaz has just revealed himself to not only be a gentleman, he is the man, Right? I mean, Boaz is the dude. He is the gentleman. He's going above and beyond anything he has to do for Ruth. And how does Ruth respond? Look at verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. So ladies, just kidding. See if any of you are still paying attention. Just kidding. But, but, but what you see in Ruth's response is she bows with her face to the ground and she asks, listen, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a, a foreigner? I mean, her response is incredible. It is so different than the entitlement of today. I deserve to be treated this way. I expect kindness. I expect favor from people. And we're, we're, we're absolutely astonished and resentful if we don't get what we think we deserve. But from Ruth's perspective, why, why would you serve me like this? A mighty man of character going out of his way to care for her. And why does she deserve it? I mean, of all people, Ruth is, is very aware of the fact that she is a barren widow. She grew up in a pagan family. She's now homeless. She's broke. She's wearing her work clothes. It's not like she got all dolled up to meet this big wig of a guy. She's wearing her work clothes. She's probably pouring sweat or glistening. <laughs> and, and to top it all off, the best thing she has to offer, she lives with her wackadoo mother-in-law. She knows she doesn't deserve the care she's receiving from Boaz. Who am I? And what have I done to deserve this? And Boaz's response is um, amazing. Boaz's response isn't, I showed up in the field and looked out and your beauty was far exceeding all the beauty of everyone else. His response wasn't, you, you are hot. So I've said this before, and I mean it. If your kid comes home and tells you the reason he's interested in her is because she's hot, your response should be, so is hell. So. But, but that's not his response. It's not that. It's this. He says, Boaz says, listen, I have been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother, and you've left your home, and you've come to live with a people you didn't even know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz says, the reason I'm being so kind to you is your character is shining from your being. You have run to my God and this, this phrase is awesome. You have come under his wings to take refuge. It's a powerful picture. Have you ever seen an eaglet, which I, I, every time I use that word, I have to look to make sure I'm using it right. Is, eaglet, is that really a word? It's a word. The eaglet trying to stay close to a mama eagle. You understand that, that that eaglet knows the only place it's going to survive some of the attacks that are around it are if it's as nestled up against the body of Mama Eagle with, with Mama Eagle's wing surrounding it. 
And that, that's the picture of Ruth. Ruth. Ruth clung to God's side, taking refuge under his wings, not knowing where she was going, not knowing who she would run into, not knowing what, what might happen, but, but knowing that she wanted Naomi's God to be her God, and so she is now clinging to him, or probably better, he is clinging to her. We are Ruth. Pagans, sinners, rebels with wrong heritage coming to the Lord empty-handed, absolutely nothing of redeeming value, not wearing our greatest outfit or even looking close to acceptable in God's eyes. But Jesus, um, Spurgeon calls Jesus the better Boaz. Jesus himself goes beyond the requirements of the law and pours out grace, mercy, on our behalf. And, 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 and we should look at Jesus the same way Ruth is looking at Boaz when she says, who in the world am I? Verse, 12, uh, sorry, verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. So you've put me at ease and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. I love that, I love that right there because there's two things that happen. She says to him, you, you have put me at ease. You have given me comfort. That is from the Hebrew root word of being able to breathe deeply. Um, I've had, for, for years now, I've had a chronic condition called pleurisy. I don't have it all the time. It just, it flares up every once in a while. And it's the, the inflammation of the sac that surrounds your lungs. And so when, when it's inflamed, when you take a deep breath or any breath at all, it feels like somebody's taking a screwdriver and jabbing you in the lungs. Kills. There is nothing better than after going through a season of wrestling with pleurisy for it to finally break and to be able to take that, oh, I can breathe. And what Ruth says to Boaz is this, you have given me that ability to breathe deeply again. Biblical masculinity is to care and comfort and to serve and to protect those who cannot serve, protect themselves. Um, you get a little bit of a slip here, a little bit of a faux pas that happens in verse 13. You have put me at ease. This is Ruth saying to Boaz, you have put me at ease and you have spoken so kindly to your servant uh, I mean, uh, the, the, though I, I don't have the standing of one of your servants, you big hunk, you. I mean, it is, he's like, I'm your servant. Wait, I'm not a servant. I, I'm not a servant. Did I say servant? I mean, I don't mean your servant. I mean, uh... and that escalates things just a wee bit. Get to verse 14. And you get to see Boaz's character again as he provides lunch for his employees. I mean, that's a great gift, isn't it? And so at mealtime, this is great, mealtime, Boaz, as he's providing lunch for his employees, looks at Ruth and says, <clears throat> hey, baby, come on over here. Have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the harvesters. Who's the one that gave her food? The boss, Boaz. He offered her some roasted grain. I mean, that, that's the kind of boss Boaz was. And I'm going to make one uh, exception to the translation that we have in our scripture here. It talks about roasted grain. I'm going to say there's no way that that mealtime had roasted grain. It was brisket. You can't prove it in the Hebrew, but I'm telling you, 
Right, you, I mean, that's, he's, you, let me give you a little brisket. Let me take care of you. Let me feed you. Let me, let me make sure you have everything you need. And, and, and he's, done, he's, just, he's doing the Barry White thing, right? Come here, let me, let me give you a little food, baby doll. Have dinner with me. And, and ladies, I want you to pay attention to this. In verse 14 at the end, it says that she ate all that she wanted and had some left over. Um, the idea of eating all she wanted, she was filled full. Girls, ladies, you're being taken out on a date. I'm going to be honest with you. There is nothing worse than you picking at a little bit of that nasty kale stuff. No, thank you. I'm just going to have a little kale. And then you get dropped off at home afterwards. You're like, I'm starving. Man, eat. That's what he took you out to do. Eat. It's okay. Fill yourself full. Maybe leave a little leftovers. That's okay. That's what Ruth did. But don't pick at it. Be satisfied. That lunch is a good meal. That lunch right there is a good date. (laughs) It's interesting that as she's done, verse 15 She excuses herself. She's up. She's going back to work. She's not sitting around for idle chit-chat. She's got work to get done. And so she she gets up to glean. And as she leaves the table, verse 15, you got Boaz is just, you can tell the man is enthralled with her. she, She leaves to glean and Boaz is like, all right, boys, listen up. He gave orders to his men. You let her gather, not on the corners, not in between the stacks. You let her gather from among the sheaves and don't you dare embarrass her. And not only let her glean from the sheaves, like, no, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pull out some stalks from her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. So you get the picture of Naomi following the harvesters around the field, picking things up and the harvesters are like, they're, <laughs> they're stacking it up and like, oops. Oops. But I was like, that's what I want you to do for my girl Ruth. You take care of her. You make sure she gets everything that she needs. She gets all that she wanted. And you don't get in her way. You get to verse 17 and you see Ruth continues to work. She gleans in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley that she had gathered. And it amounted to about an ephah. There's a lot packed into that, which is kind of crazy. But, but you, you understand, she continues to work. And then she finishes the work with the threshing. Threshing is no fun. The idea of threshing at this time, uh, and actually the place that I saw this was in a, a small village in China. Um, in the middle of the village, there was a, a hill that they had built up. So it was above the rest of the village. At the very top of it, um, at the very top of it was so packed down and so jammed down that it was solid like concrete. And they would take their, their crops up there and they would throw it onto the, 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 the threshing floor and they would stomp on it, they would beat it, they would throw it up in the air and what would happen is the, the kernel would separate from the shell and then, then when it was thrown in the air, the wind would blow the shell away and so it was left with just the kernels. And so she's, she's up there, she is threshing all of the, 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 the barley that she had harvested and she ends up with an ephah of barley. Hard to tell what that means. There's a little bit of discussion about that. But, but at the very least, that's 30 pounds of barley. Now, what's exceptional about that, not only is 30 pounds a lot, but then if you understand that in that day, the average man who was working in the field was expected to bring back one to two pounds a day. And she brought back 30. Did okay. <laughs> Verse 18 says she carried it back to town. So picture that. 
Not only did she work all day in the field and then work real hard threshing it, she came up with 30 pounds of barley, but then she hoofed it back to town with that sack of barley and she carried it the whole way. This is great. Verse 18, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. But it doesn't just stop there. No, it's not just what she had gathered. But then Ruth also brings out and gives her mother-in-law what she had left over after lunch. And you you get the response from Naomi you would expect in verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Oh, blessed be the man who took notice of you. It's almost as if Naomi gets to that point and she sees all of this barley and then the leftovers from lunch and she's got no word. Like, what? what? How? What? What happened? Have you ever experienced that? Um, my, my, <laughs> I have. Um, uh, we had just moved into a house in Illinois and um, we were doing some work on it and we had people coming over and so my wife had said to me, I, I need one more curtain. Now, we were blessed among, I mean, just above all people in the fact that we lived in a town that had an Ikea in it. I know. I know. Anyway, so, um, so, so, so she drove across town to go to the Ikea to get one curtain. I stayed back at the house to do some work and it took her a little while. It's okay. It's cool. It takes a little while. And I understand Ikea is that place. It draws you in. And, and they have this little section in Ikea that just, just eats her alive. It's that, that section when you're walking out in the back right with all the well, here's the super cheap stuff, all the seconds and all the extra sale stuff and the display models. Well, I'm waiting at the house. I'm not waiting. I'm working. And she pulls in. And she's like, I said, oh, you get the curtain? She's like, yeah, got the curtain. I go, yeah? And she's like, yeah, uh-huh. I need your help. I'm like, for a curtain? She's like, no. And we walk, walked out and she opened the back of the van and there was a bed in it. I'm like, but, huh? What? She's like, look at what I paid for it. And it was ridiculously cheap. And I'm like, high five. I mean, it's amazing. That's the feeling Naomi has. Like, what? Where? Where'd all this come from? You have leftovers? Who is the man that took notice of you? And we lose this in the English. Beautiful. The rest of verse 19 just builds. And the very last word in the verse is the name Boaz. Now it's amazing because those of us who've been reading the story, we already know the answer. Naomi is clueless and it, the narrator does a wonderful job of building the tension. I mean, it's almost like she's like, so, so who was it? Well, well, I'll tell you, the name is, you don't know him, but you're gonna love him. He's the one and the only, the boss of all bosses and just keeps going, going, going. It's Boaz. And, and Naomi's response is one of, oh, the Lord bless him. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She's talking about, in my opinion, she's talking about God's covenant faithfulness. God has continued to show faithfulness to us. That's a different tune than what she was singing last chapter, isn't it? And then she added, <laughs> that man, he's, he's actually a close relative of ours. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers, one of our guardian redeemers and suddenly in that moment Naomi's world becomes a brighter place to live in because what she says in that and we're going to spend a lot of time next week talking about the kinsman redeemer the guardian redeemer the goel but but 
but what, what just real basic, the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, he's got two functions, to redeem property and to redeem people. And, and so what would happen is if, if you went into debt and you had to sell your land to somebody else, if this person was one of your redeemers and he had the financial capability to, he could come in and rightfully purchase the land back and bring it back into the family. He would take possession of it, but it would be back with that family name. And so he would redeem the land that way for the family. He would redeem people in that if, if, if you became so destitute financially and got, gotten so indebted to people that you had to finally take the extreme measure of selling yourself into slavery. As a redeemer, if he was financially capable, he could come along and he could purchase your freedom from your debtors. And if the family name was going to suffer obliteration because there were no heirs born within that family name, he could step in and he could father children to continue the name of the family. That's what a redeemer would do. As a kinsman redeemer. Ruth's response, as she hears that, she's like, wait, hold, let, me, let me lay this out for you. He even said to me, verse 21, he even said to me, stay, stay with my workers till they finished harvesting all my grain. So she's got temp work. She gets to work for about another seven weeks uh, harvesting the grain for the season. And Naomi says to her, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Find protection with the, 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 the workers of Boaz. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. It's interesting that the, the narrator, the one telling the story in verse 21, brings up yet again that she is a Moabite. She's still a foreigner. And don't you forget it as we go through this story, that as a foreigner, she deserves none of this. She's not to be treated like this in Israel ever. This is unnatural. So doesn't it make you think that maybe... God's up to something. So she, she finishes out the season. It's a six-week season, maybe a seven-week season, working in the, in, in the grain. And, and, and you know what? She's now going to have food for a long time. She's going to have protection as she remains with Boaz's people. And all of that came as a result of coincidence. All of that came as happenstance. Luck, pure chance. I mean, Ruth just happened to marry one of Naomi's boys. She just happened to see him die. She just happened to come back to Bethlehem with Naomi. She just happens to have no food. She just happens to go to his field. She just happens to show up when, or he happens to show up when she is there. And it just so happens as luck would have it and the planets are aligned that he's a kinsman redeemer. See, even in the darkness, God is working and he is providing and he is loving I mean, you hear Naomi's cry at the end of chapter one, I am bitter. It's a real, legitimate feeling. I was full, but now I'm empty. But even in the middle of that feeling, God's faithfulness has never let us down. Because the story of Ruth is this. God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times. Here in Ruth, it's not just about enough food for the year. It's a redeemer. It's someone who can step into the mess and provide exactly what Ruth needs. Somebody to, to love her in spite of how little she brings to the table. Even though by loving her, he gains absolutely nothing. Just a, a foreigner with that mother-in-law. 
But by loving her, in our eyes, he becomes a hero and a great picture of the better hero. The better hero who looked at us who bring nothing to the table or nothing but foreigners lost in a foreign land. That better hero is Jesus who came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus who came to redeem us while we were still sinners. Jesus who found in us nothing but weakness and in our weakness demonstrated his strength to bring us comfort. The ability to breathe deeply. Now comfort is an invitation to you. Are you weary? Are you tired? Are you burdened? If you're in Jesus Christ, you can breathe deeply. Being in Jesus Christ is simply this. It's taking Jesus at his word. It's admitting that Jesus is who he said he was, the very son of God who came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect death, redeeming you from your sinfulness, your rebellion against God, making right forever your relationship between yourself and God. Jesus is that redeemer. And if you find yourself in Christ, you can breathe deeply. You can find that comfort because you can know without a shadow of a doubt that victory is certain. Know how I know? Not just because Jesus said it. Not even because Jesus died on the cross. But because Jesus took his life back as he rose from the dead. Our victory is forever secure and God will continue to be faithful for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that well through the story of Ruth. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these folks. Thank you for our church. Thank you for our church family. Lord, I, I pray that as we continue to look at, at what it is you've done for us, that we would be amazed, that we would be blown away by the fact that you love us, loved us enough to give us your son, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we reflect on the message of Ruth, as we reflect on your faithfulness to us each and every day, God, I ask that we would live with confidence, that, that we wouldn't live in fear, that we wouldn't live in doubt, but we would live in confidence that because Jesus Christ lives, so will we. God, may we face each, um, each bitterness, each care, each concern, each heartache, each heartbreak, each worry, each anxiety. May we face it with the truth that Jesus Christ wins. May we trust him in dark times. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.